Let's pray. Lord, we're humbled by how beautiful and how wonderful you are. And as Pastor read in Hosea, how much your love just pursues us when we stray so far away from you, chasing after things of the world. We are so silly and foolish so much of the time. But you're a faithful and good God, and you draw us to you, Lord. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your abiding love. For your steadfast love. For your mercy. So, Father, I pray tonight your word be proclaimed. We'd learn what you would have us learn. To understand you and your heart more, to love you evermore. You need to help enlarge our hearts to love you more. We don't love you near enough, near enough to what you deserve. But you want us to have more, and you're faithful. Thank you, Daddy. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, we finished up a little bit of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 last week, and we're going to chapter 12 this week. So let's start with verses 1 through 6. It is doubtful, doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I must desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth." But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me or to be or hear, what he sees me to be or hears from me. So, Paul is just, we've just talked about in chapter 11. We went through all the different trials he's gone through. And I want you to know his heart. As I've said, everything in 2 Corinthians is about the heart that he has for this church. He founded this church. He spent a year and a half with them. A year and a half with them that he was trying to disciple them. Okay? Others came in afterwards from Jerusalem, probably Judaizers, and they kept saying, hey, you know this Paul, yeah, he was all in good, but he didn't ask for money. It's kind of dopey looking, doesn't look very impressive, didn't speak very well. I think we've got a message for you that we can help you. But by the way, we do need to get paid for it because, you know, that's what the custom was. And Paul is basically giving a testimony of what God has done. 
not to boost himself up, but to let them know what God has been trying to do in the church. He has said repeatedly, I don't want to be boasting about this, because it's really not about me, but I'm letting you know God is directing this. And to show you God's directing this, this is the stuff that's been happening. Both the testimony Paul gave about where he came from, his basically his credentials, his, his, all his degrees and such, his theological background, but also his experiences, his sufferings. And we went through last week about all the different sufferings he did for the gospel. As I mentioned about him being led out of a basket, basically a garbage basket. That's where you threw the garbage in, okay? And led out of the wall to escape, okay? He was, you know, um, whipped 40 times minus one, so 39 times times two, which is what the Jews did, beaten with rods, which is what the Romans did. So both the Jews hated him, the Romans hated him, Certainly the businessmen who he was basically taking away their livelihood because they were not making all these idols like for Diana and all that, they didn't like him either. Nobody really liked him, okay? And the church that he helped found, the church that he's cared for, that he's already written 1 Corinthians, we believe he's written a, um, a second letter, 2 Corinthians we don't have. He already paid them a visit. He's now writing his third letter, what we call 2 Corinthians, and he's even going to tell them a little later in this chapter, telling them, look, don't make me have to come and, you know, set you straight. We have a colloquial expression about whoop ya or something like that. That's basically what he was going to say. But the reason he's doing this is because he loves them. And one of the things we have to appreciate is, you know, we're in a church that's a little bit different than many other churches. Most of the churches of the day, you know, based on the stuff out of Willow Creek and out of the 90s, the seeker sense of, they're telling you messages in a way that's easy for you to hear, that's comfortable, that you can be in the world and in Christ at the same time. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have your best life now. Okay? That's the message over and over that we're hearing. The message is God is kind God is nice, he loves everybody, and he wants everybody to come along and be happy together, kumbaya. Okay? We don't need to worry too much about doctrine. We don't need to worry too much about the gospel. You know, we just need to appreciate what God's done for us. He's done so much for us, so we need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and help one another. And that's what the church do. They do ministry. They do some good ministry on the basis of that. They'll have food banks, pantries, go on different trips to help people based on the effort of man, but ultimately for the glory of man, not for the glory of God. And Paul's letting him know those who boost themselves up, and many of them for the glory of themselves. When you're seeing church ministers, and Paul talks about, who are making money and relying on their own pockets, so they do wealthy by the, by the church itself, and you hear over and over, what's happening right now. It's getting so bad that major ministries are no longer identifying as nonprofit ministries, so they don't have to do a 1099, but they're identifying as a church. And when they identify as a church, they don't have to report anything. They can pay their leaders however they want, and only a select few know exactly what that is. There's no sense of real accountability. Just so you know, this church is actually under Lighthouse Biblical Counseling Center, a nonprofit. 
So we actually file a 1099. You can look online and you get to know exactly where everything is spent. You know exactly what the government knows. We talked, we talked about getting up a separate um, tax identification for as a church, mainly for protection later when the government starts coming after to help protect us and we're looking in that as God directs us. But we actually have an extra layer of transparency to let you know where things are, okay? Which most churches don't do when they incorporate. Why is that? Because it's clear we have to honor God. And that's what Paul's talking about, okay? So everything, his motivation is, I'm not here to boast about myself. And then in, this, in these verses we talk about, he talks in the third person. You're wondering, who is he talking about? I know a guy. This guy, you know, he wasn't sure what happened, whether he's in the body, out of the body. He kind of went up to this third heaven. Like, who's he talking about? And he later basically elaborates, and he says, this guy is actually me. Now, why does he say that from the get-go? Well, part of it is because, again, he's trying not to boast. He'll boast about his infirmities. I can tell you the suffering I went through, but I won't boast about my good things because I'm not here to have you envy me or esteem me or put me up higher. It's not about me, okay? It is about God. So he does something which what the Jews would tend to do, which is speak in the third person. Many of those in Eastern cultures do that, okay? Particularly when it sounds like you're boasting, they'll speak more in the third person than in the first person. It sounds more humble that way. So that's what Paul's doing. Now, what he's saying, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, okay? And, and even words, he says, which it's not lawful for man to utter. Those are kind of words. So basically, he's saying, it'd be a crime for me to tell you. It'd be a crime for me to tell you because I can't do it justice. Because I can't tell you what it's about. There's no words that I can say that can describe how beautiful heaven is like. There's nothing I can say to do that. Oh, and I'm, um, actually, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to tell you a story, and we'll come back to some parts about visions, but give you a sense of what he's talking about. Um, a story I got, actually, this is from Chuck Smith. He said, he read once of a little girl who was blind, but the problem was not irreparable. And a great physician performed a series of operations on her eyes. And they were taking the bandages off slowly, a few at a time, to allow more light to penetrate to the optic nerve until finally they took off the last bandages. And the little girl was sitting on the mother's lap as the bandages were removed. She looked around, just finally seeing and for the first time, she could see her mother's face. And she saw the doctor's face. And she saw the room around her. And then she got off her mother's lap, okay, walked over to the window and looked outside. And she saw the beautiful sky, the green grass, the flowers, the trees, the children playing. And guess what she did? She burst into tears. She came back crying to her mother, running, saying, and fell into her arms sobbing. 
saying, and her mother says, what happened? What's wrong? Oh, mommy, why didn't you tell me it was this beautiful? And the mother said, well, sweetheart, I tried. But it's just hard to describe in words the colors, the clouds, the sky. I did my best. When we'll go up to heaven, we'll go to Paul and said, Paul, you came here. Why didn't you tell us it was this beautiful? Why didn't you tell us it was this good? And Paul would say, and I like how Smith says it, I told you, man, be a crime to try and describe it. There are no words that can describe the glory and the beauty. And you know, it's because of our misconception that we really don't understand those people who died. We grieve for those who died, but really, our grief should be just for us that we would lose them. Because if they're in heaven, there is no better place to be. I had to get to that place when my wife died 15 years ago. So I know she's better off. I grieve and I miss her. I bemoan my circumstances. But when we know somebody has a personal relationship with God, and I just came across her writing, and I was going through stuff, kind of had to go through the attic, and saw this wonderful thing that she wanted to write a book and basically talk about her love for Jesus, all about how much Jesus has done for her life. And she had just gorgeous penmanship. I'm envious. And just beautiful. And I wish she wrote the book because I would love to read it. But it just tells you that there's no better place than heaven. Okay? To live is Christ. To, to die is gain. Amen. To die is gain. We need to be ready to love God more and be ready because we may be put to that point. To die is gain. Really. And so Paul's letting us know heaven is much better, better than you can imagine. I can't even tell you the words. Okay? You know, if we really knew, understood heaven, he says, the glories, then we should weep over someone, that we should weep over someone. God, no, you wouldn't weep over them. Weep over us. Weep us that we're not there. That we are stuck here. Because this is a fallen world. It's still beautiful in many ways. But it'll be so much better. And as you get older, and you've got aches and pains, and your body just doesn't respond quite the same way, trust me, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. So, I also want to talk a little bit about visions. And you'll get to see over and over in the New Testament different visions. Visions are not, they are supernatural, but they're actually normal within the spiritual realm. Okay? I want you to understand that. They are supernatural. Okay? They're not something that happens in four dimensions because they go extra-dimensionally. It's God transcending down. Okay? But they are the normal experience of those who are passionately following Jesus. Now, let me tell you what they're not. They're not something that's supposed to direct the theology of the church. This is critical to understand. Scripture is settled. Okay? Nothing in any vision is going to go against the Word of God. No vision at any time, if it goes against the vision of God, comes from heaven. God does not contradict himself. God is a God of order. 
Okay, so when you look at what's happened with the different things that have happened over the years and people have created these, I would call them cults, but definitely heretical, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, such as the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints, you get to see they have created other theology based on other visions. Frankly, that's what happened with Islam. When Muhammad, we were just listening to that from Nabil Qureshi when he talked about Muhammad getting this vision, he wasn't sure what it was, and later then interpreted what it was in receiving this message from Gabriel. And then Joseph Smith, who's the Mormon, said he got it from the angel Moroni. So the point that I'm saying is all those things that tell you things contradicting Scripture, above and beyond Scripture, to guide the church is not a vision from God. Because what you get to see, and we'll talk about some cases here, is that every single vision was done for the individual's personal benefit. So we have to be very careful if Kyle here gets a vision, he says, and is supposed to tell me what to do. I have to be very cautious. He may get a vision that God's telling him what to do. It says if you need to seek wisdom, seek wisdom from God, and God will give it to you. But visions that tell you what somebody else is supposed to do, you have to watch out. You have to be very careful. I'm not saying it's not possible, but there's not any good scriptural reference that reforced that. The vast majority, I'm not saying it doesn't have interactions with other people, but it's about direction. And let me give you the cases in point. So, Zechariah, right, the father of John the Baptist, got the vision from the angel in Luke verses 1, verses 8 to 23, right? He went there, he went inside. It was the one time a year that he went in. The angel basically told him he'll have a, a son, told him what he'll name it. He didn't really believe him. And says, okay, since you don't believe, you're not going to speak until your son's born. Okay? It was a direct revelation to Zechariah. Okay? Very clear. Angel. Um, excellent one with Jesus. Look at Matthew 17, 9. Jesus' transfiguration, right? Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So what did they see? They saw Elijah and Moses there. And Peter says, let's build a tabernacle, a tent. They had a vision. It was a personal vision for them. A personal vision for them to encourage them in the faith, to give them a sight of heaven, okay, so that they can do the ministry. And when they were finally able to get it through the power of the Holy Spirit, when they were baptized with the Holy Spirit and power, it all kind of came together. That was the seed that the Lord planted within them. Let's look at what God did for women. And people don't appreciate, and so there are no women in this room, but they may listen. Um, of all the faiths around that time, Christianity was the most pro-women. Sported women. Acknowledged women. The fact that they used the testimony of women was something that Jewish laws did not acknowledge. Roman law didn't acknowledge. And so they say in Luke chapter 24, verses 22 to 24... Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, this is after Jesus was crucified and put in the tomb, they astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they also seen a vision of angels, plural, too, who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him, that's Jesus, they did not see. So angels told them, go tell, go tell Peter. Go get Peter. I'm to come. 
and he told the women, told them to do a task. Now, it had to interact with Peter, but it was a task. It was something for them. The vision was personal for them. And look at Acts chapter 7, verses 55 to 56. A great read about what Stephen did. So at Stephen, at the moment when the Stonium, when he gives this phenomenal discourse full of the Holy Spirit, and this is what Stephen, at the moment about when he's about to die, he being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he echoes Jesus later by saying, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he had a vision just before he died. He knew where he was going to go. Ananias, in Acts chapter 9, verses 10, gets this vision for him. So Paul gets a vision on the road, right? He's blinded. Another vision at the same, around the same time, Ananias gets a vision going, look, now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. That echoes somebody else who said the same, which is Samuel when he was listening and getting visions from God. Here I am. So visions were present in the Old Testament and New Testament. They're all directional. They're intended by God to give specific direction. They're intended by God to encourage. They're intended by God to promote the message. They will never contradict the gospel. They will never contradict the Bible. And if you want to know if they're saying something that contradicts the Bible, then you really have to question whether that's true. And they're not intended to give doctrine. Okay? You have to remember, they're getting a vision. It's not about doctrine. It's not about, okay, now, if God gave me this vision, we, the church has to do this. This is, we've been doing it wrong for, you know, 2,000 years since Christ died. We need to do something new. And the first 144,000 are, you know, they're already been in, in heaven, and so we get to be in this new earth and all this stuff, which is what you hear from the Jehovah's Witness stuff. And don't go to college or... Or, you know, there's God himself was a man. And then, you know, you, there's the celestial, the celestial, and all these different things. And we can hold, do a whole discussion about different faiths if you want to have that discussion. But the principle, all those things are doctrinal things, theological things. That is not what the visions were about. Okay? And I want to make sure that you get that because what Paul's telling him is a vision of what God and what heaven is for himself that he kept quiet for how long? 14 years. 14 years he kept silent about it. When did this happen? We don't even know. Did it happen on the Damascus Road? Don't think so. Did it happen when he was in, in the book of Acts when he was stoned in Lystra? Maybe. It happened, there's other places that it might have happened? We don't know. We don't know. We do know that it changed him. It gave him strength. It encouraged him. It let him know, and why he's telling them is it lets him know, look, God is doing something. It's not about me. This happened to me because God is doing something. So when you have a vision, it's not about you. You're, it's directed to you, so yeah, you're involved, but it's really not about you. It's for the glory of God and for you to serve or to bless others. It may empower you, okay, just as Paul was encouraged and empowered, so that this vision gives you a sight of going, wow, 
this is heaven. I mean, I wish and that we pray that when we have something that we want here as the body to have the presence of the Holy Spirit, that we'd have some visions or have a sight, however we want to describe it, of heaven, of Jesus, of what's to come that will be there. So not that we can go sit back, go, oh, this is sweet, this is great, we can just hang, okay? Which is kind of what Peter wanted to do with the tabernacle, we can just hang up there. No, so that we can go forth knowing that we know the end. We have the word that's sufficient that tells us what's going to happen at the end. But we forget it every day. And we get caught up. And we forget that there's going to come a time. This will end. We will be at the judgment seat and we will be before holy God. Not perfect, but we will have a father say to us, well done, my faithful servant. Now, as, as we're more faithful, there'll be more blessings. As we're trusting in God, there'll be more that he'll do. There's more joy that we'll have. Not that we won't have joy. We'll have immeasurable joy. But I don't know how you can have more joy upon joy, but yeah, you can. So Peter had a vision also of unclean and unclean animals in Acts chapter 10, 17 to 19, and 11 to 5. The centurion there, the one who came, Cornelius, he had a vision to come to see Peter. And then I like this vision here because it's really a great a picture in Acts chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. This is when Peter's in prison, okay? And a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side. He basically goes, hey, arise, get up, okay? Get quickly. And as soon as Peter rose, the chains fell from his hands. Then the other said, gird yourself up, tie on your sandals, put on your garment, and follow me. And so he went out and followed him. But he didn't know what was done by the angel. Was, 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 the angel was real, but he thought he'd seen a vision. So it's like the angel basically said, hey, get up, buddy. Come on, let's get going. We don't have time to waste. Okay, and like, this has really happened? It's kind of bewildering. And then he walked out of the prison, walked to the door, okay, and he knocks in there, and they're all thinking, oh, bemoaning, you know, the last James... Their brother John, and then they're looking at Peter's gone too. They think he's dead in the morning. And they're all praying together. And then the girl at the gate, Rhoda, comes to the gate and sees Peter and she says, oh, and runs, leaves him like the gate shut. And he's like, hey, let me in, let me in. Okay, it's a funny story, but you know, the surprise and the goodness of God. And why was that vision there? Why was that angel there? It was to encourage Peter to let him know, hey, you're not alone. I'm going to protect you. And to let the church know, I'm here. What you're doing is through the strength of the Lord. What you're going to do is through my grace and my plan. That's what the Lord wants for us. That kind of faith, that kind of complete abandon, that we'll do it no matter what. And when you hear testimonies like we've heard, how many of you were there? This was back in September of 16. Heard Brother Yoon, maybe, yeah. Saw Brother Yoon when he spoke and talked about what's happening in the underground church. He wrote... The, the book Heavenly Man just talked about amazing things and the strength that God did. When, and yeah, yeah. Okay. John obviously had an amazing vision on the island of Patmos. We have the whole book of Revelation from that. Okay, all from vision. So you can pray for that, but it's not about you. Okay? It's not God uses you, 
But you understand what the purpose of the vision is to encourage you in ministry to be a blessing for others, which is what God did with Paul. So, um, the word also the expression he talks about, he got caught up in the third heaven. And I want to explain that to you. Um, some of the Hebrew scholars believe there was like seven different heavens and different kinds of um, r- ranks of, of hell. And if you get into some of that, you can, but it, I think it's a waste of time. What they mean by the third heaven is basically how they describe the reality. Most of the time they talked about, oh, you see the sky, the blue sky, that's kind of like the first heaven. That's kind of like the heaven, the sky above us. Especially at nighttime, you see like the outer space and the stars, well, that's the second heaven. That's like that outer space. And then there's the third heaven. That's the heaven that we would call heaven. Okay, that's the beyond the physical. That's the part where God dwells. We talk about being up, okay? Just like we talk, the sun rises and sets. It doesn't actually rise and set. Earth rotates. You guys know that. So we talk about heaven being up, okay, but it's basically another dimension, okay, and that's the third heaven that he's talking about, okay? So I want you to get that clear, what he's talking about. But the word he uses, the only other place he uses when he talks about caught up is the Greek word harpazo or harpazo, H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. And it's used also in First Thessalonians 4, 7. When we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Why is that verse important? It's what we, most people describe as the rapture. Okay? So when they talk about being caught up, the other word we tend to use is raptured. Okay? And so the only other time that same Greek word is used is when Paul is talking here in 2 Corinthians about being caught up. So was he raptured into a heaven? And that talks about some kind of heavenly meeting to let you know a little bit more of why that word was chosen. Okay, he's also caught up, and he said he was caught up in paradise. Paradise, you know, Jesus said to the thieves, today you will be with me in paradise. So what is paradise? Paradise is actually a Middle Eastern, Iranian word, Persian word, okay, that basically means the walled enclosure, beautiful heavenly enclosure, that you'll be in this protected place. Basically, the kings would create a paradise, a, like an Eden area that would be walled off, that would be only where the king could go where they'd want. Okay? The Greeks basically took that word, they made their version of it, and we basically call the word paradise, which is from that same root. But he talks about this place that it is so beautiful you can't really describe. So beautiful you can't really describe. Um, so ask again, I like how Chuck Smith says it'd be a crime when he says it's not lawful. Basically, that there isn't any words who can really describe it. Now, let's move on to 2 Corinthians 7, 8. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So, 
he gets this phenomenal thing that happens. Like he's raptured into heaven in paradise, seeing something that's amazingly beautiful that there are no words to describe. Just like that mother couldn't describe adequately sight to somebody who's blind. It's an experience you can't, there's no color, colors that we don't see. How are you going to describe a color that we don't know? Sounds that we've never heard. Smells, tastes, all the senses that we can't comprehend. Okay? And those are the things that Paul has seen, and so it's amazing. A sight of heaven. And then, so that he doesn't get boastful. What happens? He's given a thorn in the flesh. Given. Who gives that thorn in the flesh? The Lord gave it to him, allowed it to happen. Similar to how he allowed Job. Okay, and the thorn, the word for that word, Greek word for that thorn is skolops, S-K-O-L-O-P-S. And it doesn't mean like we think like a little rose thorn. You know, if you I had a rose bush and you do and you pluck a yellow thorn, you're like, ow. That's not what that Greek word means. That Greek word means thorn like a tent peg. Okay? Or they have those stakes. If you ever see those scenes where they have those longer kind of pole stakes in the ground and you're trying to protect yourself around an encampment and you have that so people can't get through, that's the kind of thorn they're talking about. Okay? So it'd be like a big arrow going into the side of you. Okay? It's not something like a nuisance aggravation. Okay? It's a major affliction. That's the point that that word means. Okay? And that thorn in the flesh. Okay? We don't know what it was. We don't know. Was it a physical thorn? Some say, you know, he says I write with large letters because maybe he had poor vision. Maybe his vision was the problem. He had eye pain. Maybe he had migraine headaches. Some Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, said that he had maybe an earache. Some thought, well, there's malaria around that time. He had malaria. And then a little bit of malaria, if you have malaria, you kind of keep it at bay and you can kind of function. And then when you're under a lot of stress, it flares. Okay? There are people here who have like fibromyalgia syndrome and other things. And they can function and then under stress, things tend to flare. So then when he really needs to put out and he's under tension, he's only incapacitated. Okay? So it's, a, it's not something that's that's easy. There's different terms and words that they describe about it, but we don't know. Some say he was afflicted because his thought life. You know, we kind of get a sense he was an angry man. We knew he was angry with Barnabas over John Mark. Maybe it was anger and frustration. Maybe he's frustrated easily and he just, you know, had a hot temper. He's a hothead. Maybe it was lust that he has. We don't know. It's a good thing we don't know. It's a good thing because we can relate to that. It doesn't matter what the actual thing is. There's certain things the Bible talks about because it wants us to know. There's certain things the Bible does not talk about because it wants to keep that unknown so that the points that they're trying to communicate, we can generalize to ourselves. We don't know what Jesus looks like. We don't know. He wasn't, no, he wasn't very comely. So all these pictures of a beautiful Jesus, probably not true. 
We know he didn't really stand the crowd, so him being blue eyes, pale skin, light brown hair, flowing locks, probably not true. Okay? We don't know what he looks like because it wasn't about him so that no person, no country, no people can say, he's just like me, like we're better. Didn't stop people from trying, hence the different pictures we've seen. Didn't stop people from trying, but the point is, didn't have that. So in here, we don't know the affliction that Paul went through because it doesn't matter what the affliction is because each of us may have an affliction. What we do know is he says here, that affliction is a gift given by God, right? It's a gift. Put the scripture back up if you don't mind. Okay. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. And the term buffet, okay, some translations will use the word torment. Yes, there's a command of torment, but really it's like this. You know, I want you to get exalted. Paul's walking and going, look at me. Yeah, I just want you to know, I've been to heaven. Let me tell you, it's great. And hopefully you guys will get there someday. But uh, we just need to press in. So, so he didn't want to get proud or exalted. It wasn't about, okay? What happens, he gets his buffeting means like when your boat is buffeted by the waves, and Satan knocks around. You think you're buffed up? Bang. Okay? You think you're good? Bang. You get knocked around. You become unsteady in yourself. The whole idea of the buffeting by Satan was that any sense of pride that he had was knocked out. Anything that he felt stable in his own self was created, he made unstable. So he had nothing in himself to be comfortable with. And I'm going to read a, a quote um, by Alan Redpath. Perhaps you've looked into the face of a Christian who's always smiling, who never seems to have worried, who's always happy and radiant, and you've thought about your own circumstances, and you've said in your heart, I wish I were he. He seems to have no problems. He doesn't have to take what I do. But perhaps you've lived long enough, as I have, so that sometimes the most radiant face hides great pressures, and often the man who's being most blessed of God is being most buffeted by the devil. Alan Redpath, um, born late 1800s, 1897, British, um, became an evangelist, actually took over the Moody Church in Chicago for a while, about nine or ten years before going back to Britain, early 60s. He got a stroke, okay, and became profoundly depressed from it. Profoundly depressed from it. I've quoted from Red Path a number of times here because I love his quotes, but God used that to humble him. Profoundly depressed, afflicted with depression. And yet he said, I love some of his quotes, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and he crushes him. Another one, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of the moment. But the manufacture of a saint is a task of a lifetime. That's what we're in. And so all this that's going on is the manufacturing of saints. Why are we doing the study? What's God doing? He's manufacturing a saint out of us. And sometimes we'll be buffeted. Sometimes we'll have blessings and sometimes we'll have trials. 
God scourges every son he receives. Count it all joy when you go through trials of various kinds. And one last quote that he says that I really didn't want to hear, but it's especially applicable to us older. He says, the Christian life does not get easier when you get older. We keep thinking, maybe it'll get easier. Everything else, I get better, you get easier. It doesn't get easier. You don't go through this life and go in the church, that's going to get easier. Paul didn't go through, it didn't get easier. It's not supposed to get easier. That last stretch, if you're summoning a mountain, and I wish I haven't, but those who want to do Kilimanjaro, my brother did, and my cousin once removed, so I call my nephew, but he, they both climbed Kilimanjaro, and he said the last bit, when you're up at 19,000 feet, just to walk in there, you know, you're walking through jungles at the lower levels, but it's snow-capped at the peak, and you're wearing a parka, and your last bit, you could, you know, auction levels are low, you're like, and just, and you could see it, like, there's a summit where pastor is, just to get there so slowly. That last bit to summit is the hardest. And actually going down afterwards is one of the harder parts. That's where most people tend to die when they mountaineers. They die not even going summiting it, it's going down. So the point is, the last parts that we have aren't going to be easier. And I want you to understand this part, that God's preparing and manufacturing us because things are going to get tougher. Things are. In the midst of that, we'll have greater joy. We have great joy in worship. I notice I'm enjoying worship so much more than even last year. I savor it. I love it. I love when I hear the harmony of the voices. I love when we're passionately seeking God. I love how good God is. And I want to fall more in love with Jesus. But I also know I need to fall more in love with Jesus because I need more of Jesus to weather what's coming, less of myself. And so the quote that, right, that will go on next, and you all heard about this. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 to 10, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, this is Paul saying, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. So we read before, I mentioned, he said, I prayed three times for it to go. Some say three is a, could mean basically an, an infant, you know, just kept on praying. But I mean, Paul didn't want this. He didn't come and going, yeah, I want to suffer. Give me this thing on the side, whatever that thorn is, that arrow, that stake, whatever term you want to use. He prayed. I didn't, you know, God answered his prayers. Didn't answer. God, I'll pray harder. You've got to be like that persistent widow. Pray harder. Nothing. Prayed again, third time. And that third time, he finally gets, okay, it looks like I'm going to be stuck with this. Okay, why is I being stuck with it? And then he saw this was a gift given by God to keep him humble, to keep him needy. How much of us look at our trials to keep us needy? I didn't before. I was frustrated and angry with God because things weren't going the way they did. Just talked about my wife getting sick and then dying. I didn't like that. I didn't see that God was saying, you need me. Like, you really need me. 
So that's saying the trials we have now, God is telling us, you need me. You need me. You need me. We don't trust that he's that good. We don't believe that he can take care of us. That's where we get it wrong. That's where we get it wrong. Every single trial we have, God is there in the midst of it. He's in the fire with us. We sang that song. Every single trial we have, God is there. He's that good. He's that faithful. He wants to work all things out to good. He is doing it for His glory out of His immense love for us. Okay? He is manufacturing a saint out of us too. Not mean, but as a good father, sometimes wants you to do tough things. When we fall off that bicycle and we scrape our knees, I've used that before, and we're crying, I can't wear a bicycle, and why do you make me do it? You're a mean daddy. And it's not what it's about at all. I want you to learn to ride that bicycle. So we'll get back on. We'll check the knees, scrape. Tom's here. You can see his scraped knees. I don't know where Tom There. So he did it, but it'll be like a kid with scraped knees, okay? Your scraped knees, we'll take care of that. You can ride the bicycle. And guess what? I've scraped my knees, but do I remember my scraped knees? No. I remember how to ride a bicycle. God is doing that with us. He's training us in the midst of trial. So the challenge for us is a couple of things. One, to realize what Christ, God is telling him, what Christ is telling him. My grace is sufficient for you. Whose grace? Mine. That's God's grace. What is it? It's grace. Some use that as an acronym of God's riches at Christ's expense. But grace is the power of heaven, all of God's power in you and through that. Much more powerful than we can imagine. It is grace that gives us strength yet through the day. It's grace that sustains the entire universe. Without God's grace, this universe would not exist. Scientists are marveling. They're looking and they're thinking they've got to figure it out when they know. The more they think they know, the less they know. Really. You look and you go, I don't understand dark energy, dark matter. You look at the cell. Josh, you remember Josh here was here and he's going to medical school and he showed me his book of the cellular biology and I looked at the thing of the cell. I'm like, dang, I went to school in the dark ages. I mean... There's so much they know about it now. And every time they learn something, they realize there's another layer beyond it. It's that much more complex. We've learned a lot. It's kind of fascinating to see that. But it lets you know God knows that. God's grace is sustaining that. The cells of our body are sustained by God's grace. Everything, the entire universe, our breath, everything's sustained by God's grace. Okay? And that God's grace is available to us. And the other point that it says, what it says about God's grace, it is sufficient, more than enough grace for some circumstances, for every circumstance, bar none. We may not know how to access, but that grace is sufficient for every trial that we go through. God's grace, He knows everything. He knows every single permutation, every single combination, every possibility of every, every kind of reality that you can imagine. Nothing happens that's beyond His ability to go, oh, wow, that's a surprise to me. He knows it all. And He loves you. 
and He loves you. He's on your side. There's no one better. Okay? Now, the challenge is we're not always on His side. We need to be. We, when we realize how good He is, when we can trust Him, we can be on His side. If you have a kid on the bicycle, and I remember with my kid, you know, you're trying to help, and they're trying to do something, just, just pedal, and they're fighting you, okay? And you're trying to help them. It's like, no, let me help you. And they're fighting you. And we do that. We fight. And if we said go along, okay, I will surrender and trust. Tell me what to do. Okay, I'll do the next. And I'll do the next. And I'll do the next. In obedience and trust with a God who will help. That's what's available to us. And that's what Paul said. So he said, therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities. Who boasts in my infirmities? I, I don't. Oh, my back hurts. Oh, yeah, great. I'm not doing that. I sh he does. I don't. I need to, but I, I don't. Oh, yeah, I woke up. My back hurts. Oh, yeah, I woke up. You know, I'm aching. I can't, I'm tired. My, you know, this happens. My nature is to complain about it, not to boast. Not to boast that things are happening that I don't like. My persecutions. He boasts. He says, I will take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions. I was telling, you know, I had some challenge with water bill last year, and I've shared with you some of it. And, you know, I didn't say anything, didn't complain, praise God, but I wasn't boasting. You know, I was thinking, nah, it's not fair, I don't like that, but turn the other cheek, you just kind of take it. And there's a fight within me. There's a part of trending, okay, I'll trust God, you've got to help me. So basically, I had to trust that. David was there. He remembers the whole saga of what that is. It wasn't easy on that part. I can't say that I was going, hey, I wasn't. Thank you that this happened. This is wonderful. That's not what I was saying. It's not, certainly not what I was thinking. I was thinking, this is unjust. Why are they doing that? What's happening? Okay, God, you've got a plan through this. I'm going to trust you. So that's how he helps us. I'm going to trust you even though I don't understand. I'm going to trust you even though I don't like what's going on. I'm going to trust you that your grace is sufficient when things are not going according to my plan. I'm going to trust you. That's what he wants from us. And he loves it because that's faith. That's faith. Faith is trusting in the goodness of God in the midst of of things you don't like, when things aren't going your way, and you know that there's a God who's loving, He's going to take it and going to make it good because He promises to work all things to good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Now, we have to be according to His purpose. We can do things and not do things according to our purpose. If we do sinful actions, we do things for ourselves, and we fall flat in our face, that's on us. We're rebelling and choosing to chase after sin and things fall apart. That's on, no, you know, that's on us. Why, you, why are you getting a car accident? I didn't tell you to get drunk and do those things, you know. Those are not like God. I've heard people, and they talk about it, and I've seen people. I'm not going to believe in God because of this happened. going, well, this happened because of choices that person made. And you, you have to realize that part. Have I blamed God because of bad things happened? Yeah, we all have. We can repent. 
And we can choose to believe in faith today that God will do good things. Okay? And one of the things he says here, I wish this was our motto. You don't see this as a motto. Again, one of the scripture quotations we don't tend to hear. We don't see publicized. We don't see sewn into pillows. When I'm weak is when I'm strong. When I'm weak. Now, I looked at Ken. We're playing baseball. Man, he hit that homer. That power was there. I'm going, I wish I had his strength. That I couldn't do that. <laughs> okay? But he's saying when we're weak is when we're strong. What does that mean? When we're weak, we're reliant on the Lord, on His strength. And that means we have to get weaker, not stronger. The world asks us to get stronger. You need to get strong. You need to do this. You need to get fit. You need to do this. I'm not saying you shouldn't be physically fit. I'm not saying you shouldn't do disciplines, okay? I am saying that from, a, from the heart perspective, from the core of who you are, okay? The Greek word actually would be splanchnon, and I've shared that with some of you. It's actually from your gut, we say heart. But from that core part of yourself, you're saying, I need you, Jesus. I can't make it through the day without you. I want you to guide every step that I make. I want you to decide the path for me to take. Help me to trust in you. I need you right now with this person. And even especially if we could learn to do it for things that we know what to do. That we got it. That it's easy for us. I got that. I'm good. Are you? I'm good. I'm good. No, we're not. We're definitely not good in so many ways. And so what he wants is for us to say, God, I need you. I love you. I read you. So right, we prayed here, like what we sing here, take that with us in the mornings at home. Take that with us in the middle of the day. Just take that moment, God, I need you. I got distracted. I did things in my own strength. Forgive me for not thinking about you, for not loving you, for not giving you the honor. Help me to love you just a little bit more today than yesterday and to trust you a little bit more. God is faithful. He will definitely answer that prayer. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. He's that good. So we'll finish up next week. And um, we'll finish the rest of chapter 12 and probably 13. Yeah, I only got 12 of the 22 pages on, but God is that good. That's the message I want you to get. And God is doing something amazing and I am so privileged to be here with you guys with this. I'm excited for what he's going to do next. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being an amazingly good God. We trust in your sufficiency and your goodness. And Lord, um, we just pray, oh, we pray you have your will. Um, in Jesus' name. Before I go, I'm going to tell you one more thing, and I meant to tell you this story. And, um, and I... I forgot. I don't know how I forgot. Here it is. So um, you guys know the story about Fanny Crosby, do you? Fanny Crosby is a famous hymn writer from the 1800s. 
lived in 1830s to about 1914. She was like 90-something years old when she died, okay? She wrote 8,000 hymns. 8,000 hymns. Most famous is probably Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. So, okay, so we sing that, right? So that's one of her famous ones that she did, okay? At the age of six, six weeks of age, age of, I said six, not six years. At six weeks of age, she lost her sight, Okay, some people put some different treatments they did back in the, you know, mid-1800s, and, you know, um, Lauren, you and I have watched some of the stuff, and you've got to see some of the things they did in Cronfield about that. You know, some of the stuff was kind of wacky what they did, but she didn't have vision. She was blind her entire life, okay? But she did not let that stop her or discourage her. So her words are, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank Him for the dispensation. If, perf- if perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things around me. Wow. If I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. The first face is Jesus. That's a mature walk. That's a mature saint. Choosing. And she spoke, and she didn't... I mean, she, she pushed to have Braille in different places. She spoke in Congress. I mean, it's not like she was not somebody who didn't try to do other things to help things. It's not like she just said, okay, uh, what was, I'm just going to make the best of this, make, you know, lemonade of lemons. She, she fought for some things, but the point is she knew in her core that she received, that God gave that. She had sight, lost it at six weeks of age, and then for the rest of life could not see, but wrote these amazing hymns that we still sing today. She wrote so many hymns that they actually wrote some under pseudonyms because it was just so much. Fanny Crosby, Fanny Crosby. You look at some hymns, like Fanny Crosby, Fanny Crosby, Fanny Crosby. It's like, it's all over there. Okay? And God used her for that, for the kingdom. So that's the hope for us that we get to see the face of our Savior. So, you guys are all dismissed. Thank you.